You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to and during questioning. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. You understand your rights? Warning. Each episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast will contain descriptions of acts of violence or of a sexual nature and are for people that are 18 years or older. Heed my warning, people. I do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show. These facts I'm retelling were presented to me by the victims of the crime or the perpetrators who committed the crimes. My descriptions of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes. If you are going to get offended, turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. I'm Woody Overton, your host. Stay tuned at the end of today's episode, and I'm going to be making some announcements about real life, real crime, and giving some much due shout outs to fans and explaining a couple of things that'll be going on. So today I'm by myself, Jim the Hitman Raffman will be back in two weeks, and we're going to be laying down a lot of tracks and a lot of great cases together. But I want to tell this story first. It's interesting and kind of heart-wrenching in a way, if you will. And it's titled, What Happened to Jackie? So in 2003, I became a detective with the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. And my first partner that I was assigned to was Detective Chuck Watts. And Chuck was probably the most senior detective in the Sheriff's Office by far. And I affectionately called him Dear Old Dad or Homicide Chuck because he loved to work a homicide. <laughs> Chuck was so chill pretty much about everything. But he'd been there a long time, right? But when the body hit the ground, the man would get fired up. And he really, really was an awesome detective and has great interview skills and everything. I mean, he's just a really great law enforcement professional. And I know he's retired now and splitting his time between Louisiana and Tennessee. So, Dad, if you hear this, congratulations on your retirement. But Chuck and I were working the night shift, and we rotated out detectives when your week came up to be on nights. During the weekdays, Monday through Friday, the regular detectives came out at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we would come out at, I think it's like 3 o'clock in the evening during the Weak part of it. We would split from like three to 11 and 11 to six, whatever it was. And we would only call each other out if it was something major. Otherwise, if it's just like a burglary or a rape or something like that that we could handle ourselves, we wouldn't bother each other on the late part. Now, on the weekends, 
Chuck would work the day part and I would work the nights. And I liked working nights anyway because that's when all the good stuff happened, right? So basically, I was covering 12 hours, if you want to say from sundown to sunrise, and Chuck would cover the daytime part. And it was on a Sunday afternoon around, I guess, about 3, 3.30. And I was about to go 10-8 anyway, 10-8 on duty. And Chuck called, and he said, hey, man, we got a body and hold it. And I said, what's up with it? And he said that a male called 911 and said he found his daughter dead in her bedroom. And he said, it's probably going to be an overdose or something. I said, but we need to roll over there and check it out. I said, all right. So I was living in northern end of Livingston Parish. So this house was in, in between Holden and Albany, a rural, rural area, probably 35, 40 minutes away from me. And then Chuck had been working something on the extreme west side of the parish. So he was having to leave that to go to this call also. So we knew it was going to take us a little while to get there. But naturally, I went as fast as I could. And when I pulled up, I saw a Cadian ambulance was backed up to the door. Now, let me describe this. When I say I pulled up, this was a trailer sat on a big yard probably five or 10 acres, something like that. There were no neighbors directly across the street, no neighbors directly on either side. There was woods on the side of the cleared lot, and the trailer sat horizontally with the road if you're facing it. So when you pull in, it's a gravel driveway, and it was pretty well-kept place. You know, didn't look like dopers lived there or it was a, a shithole or anything like that. But I see Chuck is there. He's getting out of his vehicle and. I called in 259-201-1097, and I get out, and they are shutting the doors on the ambulance as I'm walking up. I said, what are you doing? I thought that it was a dead body, and they said, no, we thought it was a dead body, too. And when we got here, a male came out and told us, said, I don't know what you're doing here. She doesn't need an ambulance. She needs a hearse. She's dead. And they said, well, we have to go in and check. And they went in and ran what we call a strip. And that's what I hook them up to the machine to see if there's any sign of life. And well, guess what? She had a heartbeat, even though she wasn't breathing at the time, the paramedic said. So they started to work on her and, you know, got her loaded up. And Chuck's like, okay, where are y'all going? North Oaks. And they said, yeah. And North Oaks, y'all have heard me talk about it in previous episodes. It was the closest hospital, but it was in Tangipahoa Parish in probably 20 minutes away from where we were located at this time. So they get an ambulance, they leave, and we're like, we'll be over there in a little while. And there's a male standing on the porch, and I'll describe him for you. He probably was like 50, 55, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing it was hard for me to judge age back then, because now I'm that age, right? He was an older male, balding on top, probably Five foot nine, maybe really heavy set, big, thick Coke bottle glasses. The kind of when you look at somebody in eyes and their eyes look big, you know, when you're looking at the glasses, I mean, they were thick. And he was in blue jeans and tennis shoes and what we call a wife beater shirt, which is the, the white sleeveless t shirt. 
And so we go up and say, hey, I'm Detective Overton, it's Detective White. So, you know, are you the person who called it in? He said, yeah, I did. He said, I don't know why y'all here. And then he, she's dead. And I said, well, obviously she's not dead. They found a heartbeat. They're taken to the hospital. I said, but who are you? And he told me his name. I'm just going to use part of it. He told me his name was Boudreaux. And that's a good, strong Cajun name, right? And I said, well, what happened? And he said, I came home from work this morning at 6 o'clock. I said, well, where do you work? He said, I work the night shift in a fabrication shop. He said, I'm the foreman there. I said, all right. He said, I came home from work at 6, and I went into her room. I said, who's her? And he said, it's Jackie. And I'm not going to use the last name. And he said, I went into Jackie's room and I walked up on her, and she had the covers pulled up to her neck, and she was sleeping. He said, so I went out, and I shut the door, and I went to bed. He said, and when I woke up, I heard the baby crying. And I said, what baby? And he said, Jackie's got the two-and-a-half-year-old. And the two-and-a-half-year-old, the baby, has its own room. And that's why I'm not going to use names, y'all, because I don't know where this kid is nowadays. But... He said, so I go down the hallway and open the door, and I see the baby's still in its crib in the room. And then so I opened Jackie's door, and she was on the floor, and she was dead. And I'm like, okay, so how do you know she was dead? He said, I just know she was dead. And I said, did you touch her? Did you? He said, I never touched her. I never touched her. I said, all right. And I said, so you just... No, she was dead. He said, that's right. And now Chuck said, Mr. Boudreaux, if you would excuse us for a minute. And he took me to the side. He said, look, he called 911 and told the dispatchers to send a hearse because his daughter was dead. I'm thinking, that's kind of fucking strange, right? I mean, if you call 911 saying send a hearse, I mean, right away, I was just like, I had a bad feeling, right? And so... We go back and we're talking to him. Let me explain the trailer. When you walk in the front door of the trailer, immediately to the left was a bedroom that had a bathroom. It was a master bedroom. It was a bedroom where it had a bathroom in it. And Boudreaux said that was his room. And then directly in front of you and to your right was a kitchen with a half bar, you know, with stools on it. And then there was a back door directly in the back end of the kitchen that you could see. It had a window on it. And then as you go to the right, you're in the living room area. And it was, I mean, it was a well-kept place. It, it was clean. And then you look down to your right, and there's a hallway. And you go down that hallway, and the first door on the left was Jackie's room. And the second door on the left was the baby's room. And then there was a bathroom at the end of the hallway. So, again, we're talking to Boudreaux, and I said, Mr. Boudreaux, I said, you know, what do you think happened? He said, I don't know. She's had a problem with pill addiction for a long time. He said, I guess she overdosed. I'm like, okay. So I went and got my camera out of the car and came back in, had him sit tight, and Chuck was talking to him a little bit. And I went ahead and photographed the inside of the residence, and I had him show me where he found her on the floor. And there was a blanket on the floor, a blue, like, cheap blanket from Walmart. And you could tell the bed had been slept in, but I really wasn't paying much attention. I mean, I was shooting a couple photographs, but she's not there. And 
I mean, there's no puddles of blood or anything like that. There's no signs of a struggle. I looked at Boudreaux while we were talking to him, and I didn't see any obvious scratches or anything on his face or on his arms. And he had on a wife beater shirt, so I had I could see plenty. And anyway, so we just got the recorder out and did like we normally do and say, hey, my name's Woody Overton. I'm a detective who lives in the Paris Sheriff's Office. Present with me are Detective Chuck Watts. And we're at such and such address. And we're going to be taking a tape-recorded statement of Mr. Boudreaux. So today's date and today's time. And say, so Mr. Boudreaux, we responded here because you called 911. He says, correct. And I said, what did you tell 911? He said, I told him they need to send somebody that my stepdaughter was dead. I said, I said, did you tell him that they needed to send someone or they need to send a hearse? He said, I might have said hearse. He said, I mean, what does it matter? She was dead. I said, okay, and then tell me what happened. And he went through the story again that he got home and he went to Jackie's room to check on her. And he not only did he, he, he didn't just crack the door open and check on her, which you I guess if you're going to check on someone, that, that could have been reasonable. But he stated, he said, I walked up to her bed. She had the covers pulled up to her neck, and she was sleeping. And he said, and then I went to bed, and I woke up, and I heard the baby crying. And then I went to Jackie's room, and she was on the floor, and she was dead. And again, I locked him into the statement. I said, I mean, you didn't touch her. You didn't try to give her CPR or anything like that. He said, no, she was dead. What am I going to do that for? I said, all right. And then me and my mom were sitting there and taking a tape statement and finishing it up about the ambulance coming, et cetera. And I'm looking up and I see this photograph of this beautiful, beautiful blonde-headed girl. And I said, is that Jackie? And he said, yeah, that's her. And I'm like, I'm talking about this girl was fine, right? I said, how old is she? And he said, she's 22. I said, okay. I said, who's the other lady in the photo? He said, that's her mama. I said, that's your wife? And he said, yes. Yeah. So where is she at? He said, well, that's kind of a strange story. I said, well, tell me where she at. You know? And he said, well, she's in the burn unit in the Baton Rouge General Hospital in Baton Rouge. I said, what happened to her? He said, well, we're not really sure, but she was out back on a trash pile, I think, trying to light the trash pile on fire, and uh, she burned her legs up. He's kind of being invasive about it, and I'm thinking, well, she said, maybe she was cooking meth or something. I don't know. But and I said, okay, so how long has she been in burning burn for? And he said, for about three weeks. I'm thinking, damn, right? And then, so I'm looking at Jack and I'm thinking, oh my God. I mean, this, y'all, she was like, she could have been a model in for Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Model or Victoria's Secret, whatever. She was absolutely drop dead gorgeous. And it just, struck pause to me. I was thinking to myself that, you know, why would you go, you come in, you worked all night, you come in and you're going to walk all the way down that hallway and then open that door and walk up to her and stand over her. And then I know he did this because he told me unsolicited that she had the covers pulled up to her neck. And that just really struck me as strange. First of all, that he would go beyond, why are you, the hell are you checking on a, a 22-year-old, right? I mean, and if you're going to check on her, can't you just crack the door and see that she's sleeping, especially if she's got the covers up to her neck? And that, that unsolicited statement of the covers up to the neck just, just rang wrong with me. And the fact that he would go into her room. But I, 
I mean, I didn't have anything to go on. So we're just locking him into his original statement. And it is what it is. You know, that's I mean, that's that's what he had to say. And we didn't have any evidence or anything else. And so we thanked him. And I said, Mr. Boudreaux, I said, I'm, if it's OK, I'm going to leave my car here. We got to go to North Oaks Hospital. And on the way back. Uh, and if we need to talk to you, can we talk to you? He said, no. He said, I got to go to work. I said, what do you mean? I said, um, you're not coming to the hospital? And, and he said, no, man. He said, I got to go to work. I got to work tonight. And I said, Mr. Boudreaux, I said, she's on the way to the hospital. It doesn't look like she's going to make it. I mean, what about telling her mom? He said, I'll tell her later on. He said, I got to go to work. I said, well, can you give me your work phone number? If we need to contact you, I'll call you. He said, I don't know why you be calling me but but he gave me the phone number i said regardless i said i'm gonna leave my car here because it's out of the way for logistical reasons it'd be easier for chuck to drop me off here than it would be for me to leave my car somewhere else he said that's fine so chuck and i leave and we get in the car and he's driving we're going to north oaks hospital and i'm like dude something's not right and he's like he said what do you mean and I said, why would you go to check on your 22-year-old? And if you do, why not just stop at the door? Why go in and why tell us that she had the covers up to her neck? I mean, he said it several times. I'm like, yeah. I mean, he said, I get that, but the air conditioner could have been on. It could have been cold. He said, look, Woods, and he called me Woods, or Woodrow. He said, he looked, said, look, Woods, not every case is going to be a homicide. I said, dude, I'm not saying it's a homicide. I'm just saying it's strange. He calls 911, says send a hearse. And then when Acadian gets there, he says, I don't know why y'all here. She needs a hearse, not an ambulance. And I said, it just doesn't jive with me, you know. And he said, well, we'll go right out here and see what the deal is. So we, it takes about 15, 20 minutes to get to the hospital, and then we have to go around back, and then we have to go to the security desk and, and badge our way through. Badge means show your ID and sign in and tell them who you're here to see. And we get access to the emergency room, and they were actually very busy for a Sunday afternoon. I would say there was a lot of activity you know, doctors and nurses running in and out of rooms, but it went to the charge desk and said, hey, we're here to see Jackie. I'm not going to say the last name. And they said, well, she's in that room over there, room three, but they're working on her and you, you can't go in yet. She said, but let me go check. So we waited and then she came back out and she said, no, the doctor said, y'all can't go in yet. I said, all right. So we went and waited outside the room. And then about five, six minutes later, this doctor comes out He's about six foot one. He's probably mid thirties. You know, typical deal. The white coat on, the scrubs on, the stethoscope around his neck, and he looks at us and he looks down at our badges and guns. And right away, you could tell he was no friend of the police. Right? And he's like, "What do you want?" And I said, "What do you mean? What do we want? We got a girl who's." probably going to die and we're here to work the case and he said well there's nothing for you to work i said what do you mean he said this is a drug overdose and she is not going to make it i said well doc we, we need to get in and photograph her he said you're not going in she is a drug head and she has overdosed and she is not going to make it and i said okay i said well 
did, I mean, can you tell me anything about her appearance? I said, did you examine her for injuries? He said, I know how to do my job. Don't tell me how to do my job. So I, I know how to do my job too. And I need to know if there are any type of injuries or anything to her. He said, I looked at her and she doesn't have any injuries. She's a dope head and that's it. And you can just leave because you're not getting in. And Chuck tapped me on the shoulder and said, come on. And we went over in the corner. He said, listen, dude. He said, you can't force your way in. The doc says we can't go in. We can't go in. And he says it's a drug overdose. It's a drug overdose. And that's it. That's a wrap. I'm like, well, shit doesn't sit right with me. And I said, we're not even going to photograph her. He said, well, if there's a question or something, then they'll order an autopsy after you know, they examine her and everything. And I was like, all right. I mean, you're the senior partner. You know, right? Now, on Sunday evenings, after we'd worked a long week of nights, Chuck would get off at 6 p.m., and I would cover it till 6 a.m. that morning. So it's already his getting off time. And he took the doctor for his word that it was an overdose. And what would generally happen is Chuck would go home and like to unwind and have a couple of what he calls cool pops, which he drank Coors Light. And I know he had a hookup, and he never shared it with me. It was one of the local beer men that gave him. I didn't drink Coors Light anyway, but. The local beer man that gave him, uh, you know, I don't know if Coors Light that was left over in stores or something. I just know he had a hell of a hookup because they always had cases of Coors Light. But anyway, so this is kind of his chill time. And he's been doing this like 25 plus years. And I'm like, well, you know what? I just have to temper myself down and and go with the the voice of experience. And so we're driving back over the thing. And I said, dude, you just don't think it's something's funny about it? He said, he said, Woods, not every case is a homicide. And I said, well, yeah, I said, I would have liked to at least seen her, right? And he said, well, the, you know, the doctor wasn't going to let it happen. He made that obvious. So he dro- dropped me off and back at the car at Boudreaux's house and Boudreaux's vehicle. I forgot to tell you that. He had a truck that was parked there earlier and it was gone. So I, I got in my car and, and I drove back and I went to the sheriff's office and I'm working my night shift, right? Working some reports, writing up, actually writing up the report on this incident. And at six o'clock the next morning, I was off and, and the day shift picked it up or they would go on call. They didn't come out to eight o'clock, but they would go on call if something major happened, right? And I had court that morning anyway, as I did on most days, whether it's motion suppress or probable cause hearings on or some arrest I made or whatever. So basically four days a week in the morning I had court, period. And so I went to court that morning and then went back home, probably got in around noon and took a little nap and got up. And then it was the next morning, actually around noon on Tuesday, Chuck calls me. Now we're off Monday and Tuesday after working the the night shift. You're off, and he calls me. Said he said, "Man, we got to we got to roll. We got to roll." I said, "What's what's wrong?" He said, "The chief of the intensive care unit at North Oaks called and wanted to talk to the detectives that worked the case on Jackie." I said, "And he said, well, they they punched me through to him, and he said." That the chief doctor asked me, said, are you the detective work this case? I said, yes, I did. And he's, he said, my partner, Woody Overton, I did. He said, well, are y'all coming to work it? And he said, work what? And he said, this girl has been severely traumatized. And 
y'all need to come out of here and, and work it. Nobody's been here since, since she's been in intensive care for two days. And I mean, this is serious. I mean, law enforcement needs to look at it. I mean, he said, who do I have to call? I got to call your sheriff. He said, no, you don't have to call a sheriff. He said, we were told that it was an overdose. And he said, well, this girl's got a lot of injuries to her. And I said, oh, fuck, here we go. And he said, she's got a lot of injuries and you need to get out here. He said, I worked her, I looked it over today myself. And I said, I told him, I said, I fucking told you, man. And he said, just come on. And he said, just meet me in Hammond at the hospital. So I'm like an hour away. He said, well, I got to get dressed and everything also. So we meet back up at the hospital. We sign in. This time we go upstairs to the intensive care unit and security there also you have to get let in we got let in and the doctor came out and he's we introduced ourselves detective overton detective watts and can you tell us what's going on he said why don't y'all tell me what's going on i said what's going on is we responded to the residents the stepfather said the girl was dead she was already loaded into the Cadian ambulance when we got there they said they found a sign of life they brought her to the hospital we took a statement from the stepfather and we came out to the hospital to the emergency room to work the case and the emergency room doctor told us it was a drug overdose and that was it and I asked to see her and he said no I asked did he examine her for injuries? And he said he did, and she didn't have any. He said, well, I don't know if he was blind that day or what, because she's got a, he didn't say shit ton. That's my language. He's, he says she has a ton of injuries, and they need to be documented. Something needs to be done about this. I'm like, okay, so we go in to the room and she is hooked up on the breathing machine and all the stuff that's keeping her alive. And, it was just sad to see such a beautiful, beautiful young lady. You know, the machines are breathing for, et cetera. But I'm looking at her and shit right away. I could see bruising on her face. And I don't know how to explain this, but the, anyway, the doc, the doc said, we'll, we'll do it step by step. He said, I'll show you every injury that I found. He said, what happened was when they brought her up to ICU, they cleaned her up, meaning they wiped her down and got her hooked up to all the machines, et cetera. He said that would have been sometime in way in the middle of the night on Sunday. And he said in Monday, no, they didn't know. We didn't know she was going to live or not. We didn't think she was going to, even though she was on the machine. And he said, and then I came in today and i'm making rounds and i go in and look at her and i see these bruises and scratches and i'm like what and he said and then i started looking and i had the nurses come in and we, we went over her body and she's got a lot of injuries so i said well doc we need to see every one of them and it's now i said on top of that we need to call a sane nurse and y'all sane nurses a sexual assault nurses so the nurses trained in collecting rape kits, basically, okay? And it's a process, uh, even when the victim or possible victim can cooperate and the nurse does the process, right? But now we have a body on the table who can't respond or anything else or move over. So we had to call for the same nurse. And meanwhile, and that takes a while, they're on call and they had to come from wherever. And meanwhile, we started to photograph the injuries to the body. And we started at the top of the head. The doctor would point out 
the scratch or the bruise or whatever and we're taking the pictures. And I asked him, I said, Doc, I said, what's, you know, the, the bruising on here? That doctor said there was nothing, no scratches. Well, he didn't say no, specifically no scratches, no bruises. He said there were no injuries. And he said, well, I can tell you that these are fresh because, you know, he said probably in the last 48 hours before she got here, he said, because they're still changing in color. I'm like, fuck me, man. You know, we're so screwed, so fucking screwed because a defense attorney is going to have a field day. No matter what now, we're as law enforcement because we didn't press our way into that emergency room, doctor and photographer or whatever. You know, all the defense attorneys got to say now as well, hell, she was in the hospital and somebody raped her and beat her in the hospital. You can't prove my client did anything. You can't prove that she didn't have these injuries or that she had these injuries before she got to the hospital. As a matter of fact, you disproved that fact because you wrote a report that says the doctor says he examined her and she had no injuries and it's a drug overdose. And so I'm, I'm sick to my stomach. I mean, I'm absolutely sick to my stomach because this girl had 57 different injuries to her body. And I'm going to just try to describe some of them to you. There were different sizes of bruising. Some maybe could have been from fingers, you know, like grabbing somebody grabbing a hold of you. But then there were some that were bigger, and which could be evidence of being slammed into something. Now, and the scratches, I don't really get the scratches part because it's, it wasn't like deep fingernail gouges, if you will, but more like surface scratches. And so just shit, she had them from head to toe. Now, she didn't have the scratching on her breast or I guess because she had a shirt on is, is what I'm figuring and the on her breast or on her back, but she had bruising in the areas. It just variously, there was no rhyme or reason to it. They were spread out, but. She had scratches on her lower legs. She had scratches on her arms and, you know, and the bruising throughout. And I'm just, you know, on the back of her legs and on just, just everywhere, man. I mean, it, it was a lot of pictures. And so the sane nurse, the sexual assault nurse shows up. I think it stands for sexual assault nurse examiner or something like that. Sane. And she takes her time and she works the rape kit. And I mean, that's the other thing. The, I said, Doc, we're going to need a processor for DNA. We want to swab all these bruises and all these scratch marks. He said, it ain't going to do any good. And I said, why? And he said, because they clean her down. They would have rinsed her from head to toe before they attached her to all the instruments in here. That's one of the steps of the process is cleansing, cleaning the body. So you can tell if more injuries or if there's something they missed in the emergency room or whatever. I said, well, we got, we have to try. Yeah. And he said, well, it isn't going to do any good because I can tell you they do a thorough washing of the body. And as a matter of fact, her hair, when we were there that time was, was still kind of damp. And he said that was from him washing, you know, washing her down. So the same nurse processes her and any all that includes everything from vaginal swabs to combing her pubic hairs and. So we're just praying we're going to get lucky on something. I, obviously, I'm thinking rape, and rape that got out of hand, and that's that's my mindset. I mean, she's she's beautiful. She's a ten, and my part of the mindset is is Boudreaux 
was his wife's been in the hospital for three weeks and he's he's going in to check on this 22 or 23 year old however old she was when he gets in from work and that didn't make any sense i'm thinking boudreaux may have went in and some foul play got started and a rape or whatever but who knows right we're so fucking far behind the eight ball at this point we are screwed from a law enforcement standpoint now we got to play catch up so the same nurse does her thing and we collect the rape kit and the rape kit has to, we have to go back to the sheriff's office and it has to be refrigerated until we, we submit it to the crime lab, which we took all our evidence weekly on Wednesday mornings to Louisiana State Police Crime Lab. We had a standing appointment at 10 o'clock on Wednesdays and all the evidence, all the drug arrests, everything that's been collected from uniform patrol to whatever, the detectives, et cetera, all that evidence goes once a week. So we go back to the office and we meet with Norris Hull, who is our chief of detectives at the time. And Norris was just a phenomenal guy. Love him to death. He, you couldn't ruffle this guy's feathers. He was so old school. And, but, but he'd seen his shit, right? And he'd been doing it well over 30 years. I, I, he passed away a couple of years ago and, his wife, Karen, worked for the uh, district attorney's office, and so I've known him a long time, and just one of the absolute best guys you ever meet in the entire history of the world. And we'll be telling some more stories about him in other episodes, but you couldn't razzle him. And, and we went in an office and sat down, and he, he sits back, and he had a dip in his mouth, and, and he's leaning back and said, well, boys, tell me what happened. And so we tell him, and you know, and he sits there and he's kind of, he never got mad. I never heard him raise his voice or anything, but you could tell he wasn't happy. And he said, well, we're, we're kind of fucking screwed now, aren't we? And I said, I said, yes, sir, we are. I said, and he said, well, you, you got to work it. You got to run with it. But what's your plans? And I told him, I said, well, we need to get a search warrant. We need to go hit that house. We need to get a search warrant for the premises. We need to get a search warrant for his his body to look for scratches or anything like that. Work it like a homicide. He said, the girl going to make it? And I said, no. And that's one thing I forgot to tell you all. The doctor said, there's no way this, this, she was going to live. He said, well, get it, get it, get your warrant and get it signed and we'll get a team of us and we'll go out there and handle it. He said, but first of all, we got to go downstairs and talk to Kearney. Now, Kearney was the chief deputy and Mr. Kearney Foster, who is the absolute best I ever knew. And I like to consider myself be a part of his protege, good, bad or indifferent. I have such mad respect and love for the man. But I, Kearney, Mr. Kearney is a hard ass and he would holler and yell and scream and rightfully so. He said, we got to go downstairs and tell Kearney. And they said, y'all come on. And so we went down there and went in. And Mr. Kearney was sitting behind his desk. And that's where I talked about getting called on the carpet whenever I screw something up. Well, that was right there in front of his desk and he'd tear your ass up. But, you know, when he got done, he would give you some constructive criticism and you just move on, right? He didn't hold a grudge or anything. It was just business. And so we told him and he just, he, he would sit back and put his fingers together in a steeple formation in, in his chair. Man, he was pissed. He said, I can't believe y'all didn't get in there and get photographs of her when she was in the emergency room. And so Mr. Kearney said, I don't give a damn what that doctor said. Blah, 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 blah. And he's right. I mean, it's nothing I could say. I just shut up. And Chuck, Oh, my God, I feel bad for him because Chuck just absolutely, I mean, he had been working with Mr. Kearney for a long time, and he knew what was coming. I remember when we had to go down there, and Chuck was kind of a, a, 
I don't want to call him pale skin, but he's light skin. But man, when, when he just, he was just as sick about it as I was, but he knew Kearney was going to go off and, uh, and he did rightfully so. And so we go and have Tina Stafford, who was best secretary in the world. And she was a pro at banging out search warrants, et cetera. And told her the facts of the case. And she, banged out the search warrant. Then we had to go find a judge to sign it. And you get sworn in in front of the judge and say, these are the facts. You swear they're the facts, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I do. And he signs the warrant, search warrant. And then we'll go back upstairs and we get a team together. Now, surprisingly, Mr. Kearney was up there. And this is late in the evening now, y'all. And remember, the Texas get off at four, but we had the two night shift detectives which were brian paul smith was out and brian paul and i went to the academy together and then we worked the street together and then we were detective partners together and et cetera. just at the time he was one of my best friends and i think ken mcmorris was his partner so they were there to work with his ken's another dear friend and a great cop so we had brian paul and ken robert ardon uh, another I don't think Robert had been a detective that long, but he had been like a uniform patrol supervisor for a long time, et cetera. He was there. That was three. Chuck and I was five. And then Mr. Kearney wanted to go to this scene. He said, I want to come. He said, I want I want to see, you know, I guess he was thinking it could turn into a pretty big scandal, right? Uh, uh, fuck up. Uh, um, so that I'd never, uh, Mr. Kearney had never come out on the scene with us. Uh, ever that, uh, but I hadn't been in Texas that, that long, and so we get together and we're like, he said, "Tell us about the residence," and I described it, and we were going to do a knock as opposed to a no knock because I didn't see any guns in the house when we were there uh, before. Didn't mean he didn't have one, but oh, I ran his criminal history. Boudreaux had nothing, not even a traffic ticket. So we made the plan approached the residence in case he tried to run. Ken was going to go to the back door and Brian Paul and we were going to approach the residence and, and gain entry. If he wasn't there, we were going to take the door and do our search warrant anyway. But we knew that he was working the night shift at that fab shop. And so I called and just to see if he'd answer the phone and I blocked the number and I called and he answered, I guess it was his day off. And so I hung up and I'm like, he's there. And Kearney said, when we hit it, I want you and Brian Paul and Ken and Chuck to go through everything. He said, I'm going to, no, it was, a, it, he wanted Chuck with him. And Mr. Kearney said, Chuck and I, are going to interview Boudreaux. He said, I want y'all to work the residence. You photograph everything. You take anything that looks even like it could be possibly involved with any type of sexual thing or anything like that. And he said, we would need the sheets and stuff off that bed and just, you know, just look for anything. And he said, we're going to talk to him. We'll do the search of his body to see if he's got any scratches and all that. And so I said, let's roll. So we roll over there and pull into the yard and it's not dark yet. It was still daylight outside and we pull in and we go up and knock on the door. Boudreaux opens it and he's standing there and his wife beat her t-shirt in blue jeans. And he's looking at me and his eyes were a little bit bigger when he saw us. And then Mr. Kearney and, and Chuck and Robert behind me and all the police cars in his driveway, his eyes were a little bit bigger behind those 
thick, thick glasses. So I'm going to stop it right there for this week. This is just a really strange case, y'all. If you think you, you know where it's going, you have no idea. And But because it's so long, I'm going to stop it right there. So now, just continue to listen next week. I don't think it'll go into three parts, but it's just absolutely one of the most fascinating cases. Fascinating chains of events on fuck-ups. Weird shit as far as uh, a criminal case goes. So, what happened to Jackie? Tune in again next week. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Until next week or ever, don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Okay, y'all want to make some announcements. And I'm going to start with just saying thank y'all to everybody for listening and liking and sharing and subscribing Real Life Real Crime, the podcast. As you know, if you listen to the episode I dropped, we made the finals in the podcast awards in two out of the three categories that we were nominated in. We made it in drama and storytelling and then society and culture. So excited, so pleased, so stoked. You lifers are the best fans in the world. And I love and appreciate y'all. Just awesomeness is what it is. We're well over 200,000 downloads now, and the number's growing a lot every day. And it's because y'all are liking and sharing us, and I really appreciate it. And I'm going to ask again, because I didn't know how important it was as far as people being able to find you when they Google, etc. But if you haven't, will you please take a second and go to iTunes and look up Real Life, Real Crime, and leave us a review on iTunes. And I don't know why it's iTunes, y'all, because I, on the, I have the list of all the different platforms that we're on and what who downloads the most. And iTunes is like sixth or seventh on the list. That's where the reviews are, and it would help us grow, and I appreciate it. If y'all would just take the time and go there and leave a review, good, bad, or indifferent, it doesn't matter, uh, but it'll help us. And remember our social media, and my favorite page is is the private group we have, Real Life, Real Crime, Friends, Fans, and Crew. That's K-R-E-W-E. We passed 1,900 members this week, and it's growing. We'll probably be over 2,000 by this time next week. So y'all go check it out. The Dream Team moderators will get you approved, and they're awesome. We love our Dream Team. They do so much. Not only do they approve things for the crew page, but they help promote real life, real crime, and uh, you know they find their promos, and just they do a plethora. Everybody has something that they like to do. And we added a new dream team member this week, Miss Millicent Turk. And I think she's going to be uh, a huge advantage to us. She's very knowledgeable about podcasts and true crime is her passion. So we appreciate you, sweetie. I'm glad you're on board. Um, looking forward to working with you. So anyway, y'all check out that page because it's so many posts. Uh, it's fan interaction and they, they, uh, like Karen Ortolano posts a new criminal case almost every day. And then the fans post whatever they want to post. And there's a lot of great discussions and stuff from me, et cetera. So check it out. If you like real life, real crime, the podcast, you're going to love that page. And then we have our regular real life, real crime 
Facebook page, and then we have the Real Life Real Crime Lanyap page. And Lanyap is just a Cajun word meaning something extra, a bonus, a free. And that's where, because we had so many people on the crew page, the Lanyap page is where fans can go and share their hobbies. And we've exchanged things like we've exchanged some hot sauces and beers and different things with fans like that. But also our cookbook is on there. And Carolee Coggins is a Dream Team member. She's running that. And after every episode, they do a different category for the cookbook. And so check it out. It's really interesting. And we're on YouTube. And that's grown a lot, y'all. And, I, and I'm, I've been remiss. I've been traveling so much, but I'm about to start laying out a bunch of videos. And then, uh, of course, we have Instagram and Twitter mm-hmm. and whatever else. So check us out. Check out our social media. Like us, share us, etc. And now I want to tell you about uh, the Lanyap button. Now the Lanyap button is on www.reallife realcrime.com or website and I did I honestly y'all we did that like a couple months ago and I forgot about it and a fan the a lifer the other day hit me up and he said hey is there any way I could do something to uh, another way he's a, he's a, a patron also but he wanted to know was there any way that that they could contribute something more financially to the show once in a, once in a while besides patron. Right. And I said, well, yeah, actually, you know what? We have a, a lanyard button and he went, the name is Alex. And then he, he doesn't give his last name on patron. So I'm probably, I'm assuming it's he, he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't donate 50 bucks through the lanyard button. So Alex, man, you know, I already told you, but I really appreciate you. And that was, pretty awesome to have it used for the first time well guess what within a day another lifer miss hillary hook who is from australia from down under and australia is our by far our second leading country in downloads and um then it's followed by the uk or actually canada and then the uk but and we're in 120 something countries around the world it just blows my mind the Hillary Hook turned around and hit the lanyard button. So Hillary Hook, you know I love you, sweetie. You didn't have to do that, but I appreciate it. Any little bit helps. It really does. And to offset some of the costs of the show and the time we spend doing the show, which is a lot. And the patron members, man, y'all really, we got a bunch of new patrons in the in the last week or so. And I'm going to read some of them. I'm not going to read all of them today because it's a long, um, but I, I want to give some shout outs to them. I'm like Miss Madison Siberia, S E B E R A. Madison, your charge is vandalism. Thank you, sweetie. And Ashley Jones, you've been charged with vandalism. Thank you, my dear. And Amber Salad. It's charged with harassment. Amber, you've been charged. And Nicole Gordano has been charged with loitering. Thank you, Nicole. We appreciate you. And Denise Brienne, B-R-E-A-N. I'm, I'm going out on a limb, Denise, and saying that I'm saying that correctly. But you have been charged with vandalism. Thank you. Christine Little. Your charge is harassment, Christine. You're a sweetheart. I appreciate it. In April Driscoll, your charge is vandalism, April. 
you've been charged and I appreciate you. Alana Yeager, vandalism is your charge. Alana, I appreciate you. Amber Rogers, you got disturbing the peace, Amber. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. And Cricket Worrell. I think that's how you say it. Cricket W-O-R-R-E-L-L. You have been charged with disturbing the peace. And Diana Bardwell. You have been charged with disturbing the peace. And I appreciate you. And Amy Roberts. You charge is vandalism. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate you. And Dawn Leach. Disturbing the peace is your charge, Dawn. Thank you. I appreciate you. And Amy Davidson, loitering, Amy, that's your charge, and I appreciate you. Leah Cavell, K-O-V-E-L, your charge is vandalism, Leah. Thank you so much, sweetie. Brian Terrebonne, loitering is your charge, Brian. Cuff up, buddy. I appreciate you. Samantha Green, Disturbing the peace. Thank you, Samantha. You're awesome, and I appreciate you. Kathleen Dean, you got open container as your charge, and I appreciate you. Thank you, Kathleen. Miss Erin M. Condon, harassment's your charge. I appreciate you, Erin. Thank you so much. Kristen Minnis, I'm guessing M-I-N-N-I-S, disturbing the peace. Kristen, I hope I said your name right, sweetie, but I appreciate you. And here's one. Um, no, I'm going to mess this up. Um, maybe Moises Silva. It's M-O-I-S-E-S. Your charge is loitering. Silva, loitering. And we'll stop it right there, y'all. The... There was more, but we'll do more next week, and I didn't want to take too much time because I still want to say a couple more things. All you fans, and I hope you're still listening because I should have said this first. Certainly, patron is a big, huge, huge help for us, but I love and appreciate all the fans, man. When you're going to these uh, Facebook true crime pages and stuff like that, and people are asking for recommendations and, and, you know, Real life, real crime keeps popping up. Boom, boom, boom. By Woody Overton. Man, it makes me feel special. And I mean, people that I don't even know who they are just, are recommending us. And that's because of y'all. You're liking us and sharing us and telling people about us. And people are leaving us comments on Facebook. And, you know, it's just been a hell of a ride. And I appreciate y'all. And we're going to well, let me tell you about the all, my audible book real quick. It's a book that I published in 2014. It's about what happened to me and when I died on the table in 2009 and the the stuff that followed after that. And but it has a, uh, it's just my story, but it has a lot of cop stuff in it. There's two death scene invest or I don't want to let the cat out of the bag on that one, but there's two, but at least three. One homicide or two homicides and one death scene investigation and there's cop stuff and whatever. But there's also, it's just my story. I'm not trying to preach to anybody or anything. I, I don't care if you atheist or Catholic or Baptist or Buddha or whatever. I don't care. And I, I judge people on their character and I, I treat people how they treat me. And so, but the, I think it's a pretty good story and we really re- released it. Last week, I think, and it's gotten all five star reviews on the audible review part. Uh, I think 14 
people took the time to actually leave reviews a lot more bald and I'm appreciative of that. But here's the deal. Look in the show notes because if you never had an audible book before, you can get it for free. And uh, so we're going to put that link in the show notes. You click on that. And if you've never been, I've never listened to a, a, an audio book and the, we will put the link in there. And if you've never had an audible book before, you get it for free. And then if you get it, Leave us a review. I appreciate that. If you if you have had Audible books for, I think I think it's for sale for like six bucks, y'all, and uh, it's a couple hours of me, and it's it's a um, shit. I don't even like to think about it now. As a, it was, it's a tough deal. It's a tough story, but it's a true story. And so, if you would check that out, and I have a new book. I signed a contract to narrate for a. A pretty well-known author. She's got like over 30 published books and I'll be finishing that book and it'll be going in for final submission. And it'll be released, um, probably sometime in the next couple of weeks. So, and I'll, I'll make announcements about that when it comes out. And, uh, it's the first of a four part series. And anyway, that's it. So I love and appreciate all of y'all and. I'm thankful for you and thank you for everything that you do and watch us grow, baby. And it's because of y'all. So comments or bitches or gripes, complaints, send them to me and and I'll answer it one way or another. You may not like what I have to say, but I've made a lot of changes to this show based off of people who made comments and including putting all this talking at the end of the show and all that. I mean, just little things we glean and there's some things that, I'm not ever going to change, like saying patron. I say say it the way I want to, right? And uh, but I'm certainly open to your suggestions. And thank y'all for everything. And then, like I said, it in two weeks. Well, no, a week from Sunday, I go to Orlando for a convention. And Jim, the Hitman Raftman, lives in Orlando, and we're going to lay down a bunch of tracks for a future show. I, the last one that we did over the phone, uh, you know, the audio wasn't the best, but we're still learning as we go and we'll get better on it. So I want to do a bunch with him face to face and put them up in the ball. We're going to put some patron episodes up. That's it. I could just talk all day, I guess. And uh, love y'all. And then thanks for all of you who voted for us for the podcast awards. And we'll see how that turns out. I think that uh, it comes out sometime in September on International Podcast Day is when the awards are announced. But love y'all. I appreciate you. And until next week, peace. to remain silent anything you say can and will be against you in a court of law you have a right to an attorney prior to and during questioning if you can't afford one the court will point one for you you understand your rights <laughs>